Boucher. Welcome to the Space Economy podcast and the final and 10th episode in our special series, Doing Business in the Solar System, hosted by Elizabeth Howell. While this may be the last podcast in the Doing Business in the Solar System series, I'm happy to announce that Elizabeth will be back in the fall hosting a new podcast for SpaceQ, making it the third podcast that we produce. More details on Elizabeth's podcast will be revealed in September. Okay, today's podcast focuses on the space exploration economy. Listen in. Welcome to Doing Business in the Solar System, where we talk about finding opportunities in the universe. This is a SpaceQ podcast, and your host is Elizabeth Howell. It's notoriously hard to predict the space exploration economy. 20 years ago, space tourism was a pipe dream, and no company had yet sent a cargo ship to the International Space Station. These days, tourist flights and cargo ships are becoming a little more common. And so are there any lessons we can draw from what's happening today to think ahead to, say, 2050 or so? So to help us with that, joining us is Michael Dodge. He's earned multiple law degrees, and he is an associate professor and director of graduate studies at the University of North Dakota's Department of Space Studies. Welcome. Thank you, glad to be here. So before we begin, can you tell us a little bit about your research with a particular focus on where possible, how your work touches on space exploration and the economy? Sure, I mean, a a lot of my research deals with um, the exploitation uses of the outer space environment, in particular, the uh, environment around the Earth, the orbital environment, as we might call it, and uh, the environment of the moon and Mars and, and places of this nature. So I do a lot of international law research uh, much of what I do tries to take a look at how nation states like the United States are interacting with the uh, international legal regime, especially that established by the Outer Space Treaty and its progeny treaties. So that's what a lot, a lot of what I do is associated with that or uh, regulatory analysis of the things going on in the United States where there's quite a lot going on vis-a-vis um, the use of the environment around the Earth in terms of uh, space tourism, in terms of uh, exploitation of resources on the moon and, and things of that nature. All right. Thank you very much for explaining your background. And then let's talk a bit about some of the trends in the space economy these days. So I'm going to be kind of stepping through a few items fairly rapidly. And so just as best as you can, realizing that we're hitting quite the right range, um, let me know your thoughts. And so the first one is, how do you see space tourism changing in the next few years? And of course, you mentioned that you do a lot of international law. And so if you want to take that kind of an aspect to answer the question, then please, you know, go ahead. Absolutely. So space tourism can be tackled from multiple perspectives. In terms of the the economic part, we're certainly going to see over the next handful of years, there's going to be more of an emphasis by the companies, especially in the United States, that are working towards more and more space tourism as a business model. So we've seen, of course, of late, there have been the the billionaire philanthropists uh, slash patrons, however you wish to describe them, that have their there are space companies out there. We've got SpaceX and we've got, um, you know, Blue Origin. We've got Virgin Galactic. Those those latter two especially have been making inroads in in terms of space tourism of late. I think that 
successful flights lately are going to encourage them to continue pursuing that as a possible business avenue. And it's certainly something that's going to give their companies a lot of attention, which is something they are looking forward to doing. So we're going to see that happen and we're going to see that continue to push and to grow. And the, the number of people wishing to take a ride to, to space will also uh, continue to grow with it. And I think that that's something that they're looking forward to seeing. In terms of the, the, the legal perspective, there are a lot of unanswered questions as of yet as to what these individuals are, who these individuals are that are on board these spacecraft. Um, in, in 2015, there was a law passed in the United States that uh, at least for launches from the US that defined people differently, their, their, their title, if it, as it were, legally speaking on a spacecraft will differ depending on what they're doing and who endorses them. So the, the astronaut, for example, was given its, its first ever real legal definition at that point in time. Um, and then we've got definitions such as crew and spaceflight participants, which is probably what we'll see most space tourists classified as, uh, because most of the time they're going to be just simply taking a ride and, and enjoying the ride rather than participating in some meaningful way. So those are concerns from, from local legislative perspectives that still need to be worked out. Are these, who are these individuals exactly? Are the current regulations and laws applicable to them sufficient for their needs? Um, and then we're gonna look at this from an international perspective as well. Are, are, is everyone on board one of these spacecraft considered to be covered by the parameters of the Outer Space Treaty or the Liability Convention or the Return and Rescue Agreement, which of course is one of the most important ones for their purposes, should something go awry? And there's certainly been a lot of question about that in over the last decade or two with uh, space lawyers trying to come up with some answers to that, whether or not these people are considered astronauts from the perspective of the international realm, even if, for example, they would only be considered spaceflight participants from the domestic one. So I think there's a, still a lot of uncertainty there, and that's going to be need, something that needs to be worked out by both local legislators and also the international regime of the United Nations. No, exactly. That's always been the ongoing challenge of space law, because what you mentioned there are those three main aspects. Those are some of the underlying aspects of international space law, which is often treaty-based, as I learned myself at UND long ago. And um, of course, the challenge is that that was made mostly in an environment where we didn't have private companies operating to the, perhaps may I say, the autonomy is today. So that makes it rather interesting. And then that also kind of brings us to the International Space Station, because we think of it as a place where government uh, works. There are small experiments, of course, from students and from companies, but that is growing. And now NASA actually wants to be adding more private activities to the space station. So there's cargo ships that are already going up there. And then soon, uh, Axiom Space and other entities may be trying to fly some astronauts as well. And so how do you see privatization of science activities and uh, I guess operational activities sometimes in orbit changing the focus of the research, if at all? Sure, we do see that there's a, a change coming. And it's already been, as you described, been happening over the last uh, several years here. And that's certainly gonna continue with respect to especially the International Space Station. And I think that a lot of that has to do with the fact that the, the governments that are in charge of funding the International Space Station are, are themselves always strapped for resources themselves domestically. So they have to find ways of funding continued operations on board the ISS if they wish that particular entity uh, or object to continue operation. It's, it's already really kind of past its prime in terms of the expectations of how long it would be up there, but it's still considered to be, politically speaking, a very popular program. And, and people like the International Space Station. They like the idea that nation states from around the world are cooperating, not, not 
all nations, but certainly a, a, a select handful cooperating together. And they like the fact that there's been a lot of public research going on at, at that uh, particular installation. So with private entities getting on board, we now see that this is one potential way to maintain interest in the space station. And at the same time, perhaps provide an infusion of much needed uh, funding for operations on, on board that particular um, structure. So we'll, we'll see to what extent that will take over. I don't think it would be wildly popular for the entire thing to be just become a private research lab. Um, and there might be some political back, backlash for that among the taxpayers that are helping to fund this, uh, uh, the ISS. So, so we'll see, but I think that there's certainly gonna be an increased interest in private companies going up there to do their own work, to do their own research. And right now, the governments, especially that in the United States, seem to be uh, aligned with that philosophy. They seem to think that this might be a good, at least temporary solution for that issue of funding. That makes sense, exactly. All right, and so there's an international space station agreement that we've kind of been alluding to here. There's also the Artemis Accords, and so that's a uh, initiative NASA-led under which several space agencies and countries are working together to try and use the moon a little bit more, possibly including human landings later in the decade, depending on how quite a few factors go with the uh, ongoing Artemis program. And so assuming that we stay somewhat on track, you know, in terms of the funding, the technology, the launches and all that stuff, where do you think that we're going to be in the next five or so years in terms of the private opportunities that are available on the lunar surface? Sure, and that is indeed a very large assumption. <laughs> but uh, I mean, th these are, are tricky, tricky things. And when you're dealing with not just the concept of, of doing scientific experimentation and engineering, but also the concept of dealing with governments. And they can be quite finicky about what they're interested in, and, and especially when you have a series of democracies that are involved here where the, the politics change every handful of years and their priorities change with them. It's entirely uh, foreseeable that we might not see a lot going on in the next five to 10 years with respect to the actual surface of the moon. But that said, there's certainly still a lot of passion for that. There are a lot of uh, politicians in, in the various member states of the uh, Artemis Accords that are interested in seeing something happen. For now, I would surmise that over the next five years or so, the, the main interests for, for companies and, and private entities on the surface of the moon are going to be those that are working hand in hand with governments to achieve programs associated with the Artemis Accords or the Gateway Project or, or any of the surrounding necessary uh, programs that need to be undertaken in order to make this success. So we're going to see a lot of uh, PPPs, public-private partnerships, and I think that's going to be the biggest opportunity right now for entities that wish to do business on the moon or with entities that are operating on the moon, which is still largely being driven at this stage by governments and government entities such as that of NASA. So that's where I think we are right now. I think in, in the deeper future, we will see more and more private entities with more opportunities to do things on the moon, such as exploit natural resources and perhaps enter those resources into the stream of commerce, both in space and back on, on Earth itself. Okay, and then uh, the next thing, rather the last thing that I'd like to be uh, talking about in terms of the current economic environment is what's going on with uncrewed types of missions. And so looking at low Earth orbit, there's a lot of things we could be covering, obviously, uh, Earth observation, climate change, that is a big field. But what I wanted to zero in on was something that has a real, perhaps, economic impact on astronomy, as well as certain cultures that might be looking at the sky, which is mega constellations. So, so that idea of huge swarms of satellites, uh, thousands 
thousands of them that multiple companies are proposing to put up their Starlink from SpaceX, and we have one web uh, constellation and a few others. And so the, the, the public good there is that it provides broadband service, but of course, many astronomers are also worried about their impact on the night sky, because with so many satellites going through, it's hard to be taking a look at the sky for long periods of time. You might get flashes, you might get streaks, and that makes it hard to search for things like asteroids. And so what are some of the economic and legal ramifications that we should start to think about as we're kind of navigating this interesting environment? Absolutely. And mega constellations have been quite the controversial topic over the last few years. And I think that they will continue to be so in, in no small part because of this large impact that they're going to have on observational astronomy on the Earth. I, I've spoken with many astronomers who are irate, uh, to say the least, at the uh, the notion of these constellations and have already been pointing out uh, areas where they've had interference with their scientific research because of these constellations. And these things, these mega constellations, they sit at this nexus between scientific need, technological innovation, and political reality. And the reality is they, they tend to be right now relatively politically supported and popular because it's very easy to say, hey, we've got a social justice overlay here that we can, um, we can, we can use in order to promote our business, those, those private entities that are, are attempting to create these, these mega constellations, and say, yes, we can create something good for our business, but we'll also be doing so much good for people on the earth. We can serve underserved populations, for example. We could provide more affordable internet and, and so on and so forth. There are other arguments as well. But that's something that they have sort of going on in their favor, and it couples with policies, at least in the United States, for example, the national space policy of this country, which is issued by the president and, and sometimes will change uh, every time there's a new president. But even with all, all the changes that we've seen over the last couple of decades, they've been very consistent about saying we want to use space for economic opportunity, and at least from the perspective of the United States, there will be efforts made to protect that. Even the Department of Defense, I think, has even been cited in the, the national space policy that was issued in 2020 and towards the end of the year, saying they will defend the United States and its allies' rights to, to economically exploit the outer space environment, whatever that may mean. So this is just hand in hand with a longstanding policy that we want to commercially exploit the outer space environment because governments have tended to believe that that's good both for the government and for private development and entrepreneurial operations. So these mega constellations seem to suit that policy goal and they seem to suit the other political goals and aspirations people have to serve underserved populations with new technologies. So those things tend to be outweighing at this point in time the concerns of scientists and astronomers that are worried about this. But I don't think that's the end of the story and in fact, we've seen recent regulations made at the level of the FCC um, and other places that are looking towards uh, regulating space debris in particular as a, a particular hazard in outer space. Mega constellations are seen as a potential threat to increasing that, that problem, the problem of debris that could create potentially cascade trouble for those using outer space environments. And if that were to happen, for example, this could create long-term devastation to other kinds of economic exploitations of the space environment. So there needs to be a balance between the regulation of the outer space environment and the permissibility for companies to begin commercially exploiting in concurrence with local policies.
Thank you for bringing us up to speed on these various current space activities. And so let's try and move as best as we can into the farther future. And I do realize that it is extremely hard to be making any predictions about the space economy because it constantly is changing. We make predictions that seem reasonable 20 years from now and then 20 years pass and you're going, what were you thinking at the time, right? So let's let's be sort of forgiving of ourselves. But as best as we can, taking a look at maybe the year 2050, so about 25, 30 years in the future, as best as we can predict right now, how far do you think that humans are going to venture in the solar system by that time? So if, if we mean actual human presence, like a human being um, in, in a spacecraft, that, that's an excellent question. And it is insanely difficult to predict that. Uh, I, I feel great sympathy towards futurists who are always saying, hey, this is what's going to happen. And you see their predictions are quite off very often. But uh, it's, so it's incredibly hard to, 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 to predict what we'll be seeing at that time. We do know that the government of the United States has claimed that it wants to, to be uh, at Mars with, with astronauts by that time, or even before that time. And we've also seen private entities such as SpaceX under Mr. Musk saying that they're going to they're gonna not only do the same thing, but they're going to beat the governments to that particular celestial object. So it's entirely feasible that that could happen. I think the technologies exist that can, can get us there, at least can get spacecraft there. We've seen that time and again. But the difficulty right now is in resolving human factors concerns. And the, the uh, frank reality is it would be very difficult to keep human beings alive, um, sending them all the way out to, for example, Mars, um, given current levels of technology. And so that's something that's being worked on all the time, constantly by nations around the world and their space agencies. But will we have that resolving time to send someone out that far by 2050? I don't know. I think one of the great impetus points for space exploration has been, historically speaking, national pride and competitiveness between other nation states. And that's one of the things we saw that I think really fired the United States and the Soviet Union in their, their race to the moon. And right now, we don't really have anything that's quite that uh, powerfully impacting competitiveness between states that might suggest that they can actually get it done in that time frame. So it's difficult to say. I, I can't say for sure that we would be out there by 2050. I think there's a strong chance of that. I don't see us being beyond Mars by 2050 with actual human beings, but I could be wrong. I mean, the, there are other industries of, uh, out there that wish to be developed, such as that of asteroid mining, and that might require eventually a human presence, although I think certainly in the uh, short to midterm, we're going to be seeing that mostly done by robotic uh, exploration and, and, and mining operations. So exactly. that would be my guess. And that's something I'd like to be touching on next. And so if we do end up establishing a base on the moon and assuming that we have maybe robots, maybe humans working together on there, how can we, be, how can we best begin building out a sustainable economy on its surface? Well, and that is an excellent question. I think there are a lot of researchers that have been, been saying what, what, what we really need right now is more research <laughs> to figure that out. There's a big question ongoing right now as to whether or not there even is the case, a business case for doing operations on the moon. And so we're not sure that that's even present as of yet. But assuming at Arduendo that it is, and then how would we establish a, a, a good economy there? I think that a lot of that's going to have to do with uh, international trade. It's going to have to do with cooperation. And it's going to need to sort of use frameworks such as the ISS IGA and Artemis Accords as a basis for creating those kinds of relationships between nation states 
who would then be free to contract or subcontract out to private entities and organizations that wish to do particular things for them. And at first, we're going to be seeing that, I think, as I said earlier, the, uh, the work that's going to be done by private entities will be in support of government goals and aspirations. But beyond that, once we start seeing corporations wishing to exploit natural resources, and I, I believe that that will happen at some point in time, how do we establish a, a, a viable economy is, I think, something that's a little bit beyond my expertise. Uh, I, I do know that there are concerns about if we were to bring back large quantities of valuable resources to the earth, what would the impact be on trade and commerce in, uh, on the planet earth? And that's something that's still unresolved, hence my earlier statement that more research needs to be done. But I certainly feel like there are opportunities available and there will be business being conducted and mining operations being done uh, and undertaken in the near future, not near future, but midterm future, let's put it that way. Okay, thank you. Um, now, I want to touch upon something that you briefly brought up beforehand, but I think it deserves more attention, especially given that as we're recording this, we just had two uh, billionaire-led space flights with tourists on board. And so people like this that are going into space uh, vaguely might be astronauts, vaguely not. I know the Federal Aviation Administration is still having some debates about that, but what are some of the legal challenges we're going to be starting to face as space opens up a little bit more to, let's say, rich non-professional astronauts? Sure. I mean, there are various potential legal challenges there. As, as I mentioned earlier, one of them is just international. If, if, for example, let's say someone's on a Virgin Galactic flight, and that flight were to uh, have a, a mishap and it were to uh, crash land in another state, that's not the United States where it was launched from originally, um, would there be an obligation for other states to rescue the individuals on board? If, if, if that's something that we have to think about, of course, the gut reaction is to say, of course, they would do so. But it's not that simple, and we don't know whether or not those individuals would actually be considered to be astronauts under the Outer Space Treaty, for example, or whether or not they would uh, be concerned uh, as individuals deserving of rescue under the Return and Rescue Agreement. So those are things that need to be worked out, potential, uh, provide potential legal risks for those industries going forward. But as you mentioned, there's also the, the matter of, of naming, who's, who's going to be named an astronaut, and, and why does that actually matter? Um, of course, it matters under the international legal regime, but as I said earlier, there is a national law in the United States now that defines astronaut in a very particular and peculiar way, and individuals who are doing space tourism do not meet that definition. And now we also see other things, as you mentioned, the FAA is trying to make some changes to the definition of, of what who counts as an astronaut under their, their particular program that in the past people have said, if you can go up, up to 50 miles, then you get your astronaut wings. I think that this is as much political as anything, and, and that, that's, that potentially could be changed depending on uh, the, the next administration, but that's certainly something that uh, we want to keep an eye out for as well if you're, if you're involved in space tourism. Thank you very much. And then just opening this up a little bit more broadly, because I may not have considered everything, obviously, um, what other space changes do you see coming down the pipe by about 2050 or so? So um, I think that we're going to see continued investment in space technologies. We're going to see a lot of what we see right now, but expanded greatly. We, we have seen that nation states from around the world are very, very, very heavily invested in outer space right now, from everything from their economies to their national security regimes. That should not be changing and up through the year 2050. It should, if anything, be expanding. We see nations like the United States even creating things such as the Space Force to 
protect the, the space environment for the perspective of that particular nation's interests. We see other nation states with their own um, uh, particular groups that have similar uh, mandates to protect their, their nation's interest in outer space. And I think that will continue. We're gonna see nations using space more frequently. There'll be more remote sensing, more tele telecommunication, and potentially even uh, the early stages of mining operations on the moon or other celestial objects. And that's just gonna continue from, from this point forward and including private operations as well. So there have been, there's been talk for a lot of years now that private entities would be doing things like creating space hotels. And they would be creating a place not just to take a flight uh, as we've seen recently, but for people to enjoy a vacation um, in, in orbit or wherever that may be the case. So I think that's still, I mean, it sounds like fantasy, but they're certainly, they've already been testing the technologies. We've seen uh, Bigelow, for example, tested a, uh, a habitat on the ISS not that long ago and has demonstrated that this is possible. So we'll, we'll see how that's gonna go. But I think by this point in history, we may see more companies that have been developed on the earth and have actually begun launching their own operations in outer space in addition to what we're already seeing, the proliferation of mega constellations, the increased use of private entities to serve government interests in low Earth orbit, such as servicing the uh, Inter International Space Station or other kinds of potential uses, such as repairing satellites and, and, and so on and so forth. So we're certainly going to get see an expansion of that going forward. What we need to be aware of is how do we do this in a sustainable manner so that we don't create a problem for the space environment through the, the proliferation of orbital debris. So that's something that's on everybody's mind, whether or not you're a private entity or a governmental one. Thank you very much. And I realize we're almost out of time, but I wanted to squeeze one last question in, which is um, what is new at UND, perhaps some of your colleagues or some other people you've been corresponding with in terms of research in the space economy? Sure. Uh, so UND has, is continuing to develop its relationships in space studies, especially where we're seeing a, a solidification or an exploration, I should say, of a relationship with various entities in the United States government. The Space Force and Air Force have uh, expressed interests in working with the United States and, uh, sorry, with space studies more particularly in developing interests uh, of theirs, which will have at least some tangential impacts on the space economy if that bears fruit. But these are all very early days discussions and it's difficult to say what will, will come from these sorts of things. And outside of that, um, that most of the research here is being done, um, as you know, from your own time here in, in things such as planetary sciences and, and, and space law and regulation. So I'm doing a little bit of uh, research myself again on the regulatory impact of the government onto private entities in the space environment. So that as well will have an, an um, sort of an in, insight, I think, into what's going to happen vis-a-vis -vis the economy, at least with local entities in the United States. So that's being developed. Uh, I suppose I should say stay tuned and, and we'll see. All right. I'll have to call you back, I suppose, and see what happens. <laughs> Thank For you sure. very much. <laughs> All right. That was Michael Dodge. He is an associate professor and director of graduate studies at the University of North Dakota's Department of Space Studies. And you were listening to Doing Business in the Solar System. It's a Space Cube podcast, and your host is Elizabeth Howell.